Welcome to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast where we discuss how the world was, is, and will be ordered. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, the editorial director at GMF, and today I'm joined by Baroness Catherine Ashton, former EU High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, and also a member of our Transatlantic Task Force. We're going to be talking about uh, the Transatlantic relationship and the future of transatlantic cooperation and international politics in 2021 under a Biden administration. So first of all, Baroness Catherine Ashton, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to be with you, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Um, So as I said, we, GMF did this uh, task force project this year, which concluded, the first stage of it concluded in October. We brought together 16 eminent foreign policy experts and practitioners, in fact, um, from Europe and the U.S. together to discuss a kind of transatlantic agenda for 2021 uh, before we knew who was probably going to be leading foreign policy on the American side. So now we have uh, a presumptive future President Biden. Um, and I wanted to return to, you know, some of the issues that the task force talked about and look at them now that we know that Biden's going to be leading foreign policy, what we can what we can expect and what this looks like from a UK European perspective. I'd like to start with COVID because the first chapter of the report that the task force authored was on was on COVID and responses to both this and a future pandemic. And in the meantime, we have the announcement that we have a very promising vaccine that's in fact a transatlantic cooperation. Uh, BioNTech, a German uh, company in partnership with Pfizer, an American company, uh, has an early, very promising looking vaccine. And we have even an EU agreement around distribution for this vaccine. So it's it's looks to me like it's almost exactly what a task force would have wanted. Now that we envision Biden coming in in January, what do you think about what we could build around the initial success, hopefully, of this vaccine? Could we build more around it to make the COVID response uh, more transatlantic and more effective? You know, it's a really good example, uh, Rachel, of exactly what we were trying to get at in the, in the task force, because here you've got scientists who are brilliant, working across the pond, collaborating effectively, and no doubt, by the way, will be collaborating with their colleagues all over the world as the results from the trials become uh, well understood and as as they move forward, Um, working together to try and solve a problem that is a global problem. And it's the best of us. It's the best of that relationship. It's the best of people being together and trying to resolve issues and problems. And what we hope will happen with this example is that it will become the sort of template for, okay, we've got a vaccine that looks like it's 90% at least effective, uh, that can be rolled out to people in a proper and orderly fashion. We need to think about distribution, not just across the Atlantic, but across the world. We need to think about all of the ways in which we can now support communities and economies back into uh, a a normal growth uh, and to tackle some of the underlying problems that have either been revealed because of the pandemic or created because of the pandemic. 
And of course, the, the big underpinning question is, uh, what do we do if this happens again? You know, this may not be the only pandemic. Pandemics have been talked about and warned about for a long time. They're in our list, as I describe it. When you talk about global issues, you always have in, the, in your list of things, pandemic. Well, we've now experienced the consequences of one um, and we need to be ready for the possibility that there could be another. And so that transatlantic cooperation needs to extend to that. So it's a really good example of the best of us being able to do brilliant work together. Yeah, I think the first steps are really promising. Do you say, think something like, you know, a G7 initiative around this vaccine and, and maybe next steps is looking now likely promising? Would that be a, a, a good next move to make sure that, you know, the things that you mentioned um, happen in terms of, you know, coordinated orderly distribution, not just in Europe and the US, but elsewhere? Or do you think a different approach would be better? Well, I suppose I would begin by thinking about the World Health Organization. It's an organization that exists to be able to think globally about public health, amongst other things. And it's an obvious starting place and starting point because it has within its reach the potential to look at what's needed uh, in every country on earth. It has a global uh, mandate. So, you know, number one, do we have institutions that can help us work out the distribution and the support that's going to be needed? Well, we do. We have the World Health Organization. We also have uh, organizations like the Gates Foundation who've been doing an incredible amount of work on public health right across major parts of Africa and beyond. Um, do we have institutions that can think about Europe? Well, you've got the European Commission, which is mandated to do quite a bit of work around these issues and is looking for an increased mandate to do more. You've got countries like Britain where the transatlantic relationship is very strong and where there'll be a desire as a European nation, even if not part of the EU, to participate. So there's quite a lot, I think, in place. Of course, when you bring together major economies like the G7, uh, when you're looking at other issues, so you talk to the G20 and so on. These are good, more informal groupings, as I would describe them, uh, and, and good places to really think about some of the other consequences. I would get the G7 focusing a lot on the economic challenges that are now going to be faced, a lot on coordination and thinking around how we're going to support trade and economic growth in the future, and collaboration on areas such as um, how do we ensure that we've got good supplies, uh, medical supplies and medicines, and stopping what you might argue is a protectionist approach to medical supplies and equipment too, is how do we make sure that for the future we have the capacity and the availability to be able to move supplies and to be able to ensure that people get the best possible medical care. Okay, that sounds like the outlines of a pretty good plan, starting with rejoining the, the U.S., rejoining the WHO, which Biden has said um, he will do. So um, I want to move now to a topic that I assume is quite close to your heart, which is the JCPOA, uh, the nuclear agreement with Iran. Um, 
I think everyone knows that you were absolutely a crucial figure in making this deal possible. And you led the negotiations on behalf of Europe, um, on behalf of the European Union with Iran until 2014. Um, I remember, you know, back when the deal was sealed, a lot of people were talking about it as perhaps the biggest EU foreign policy success, um, which made it all the more bitter when um, the U.S. withdrew from the agreement under uh, Trump. So Biden has now said, you know, he wants to rejoin the agreement. At the same time, um, reports are that Iran is something like 10 times now above um, the limit of enriched uranium that it's supposed to have. So, you know, if Biden rejoins, is, is everything good? Or what is the future now of this agreement? Well, well, you're right. It was an incredibly important agreement. I operated on behalf of the Security Council as well as the EU. And over the four and a half years that I was engaged with uh, the Iran talks, it, it was very important to me and I think to everybody concerned that if at all possible, we were able to resolve this problem via diplomacy. Diplomacy gets a bad name a lot of the time. It doesn't get appreciated for what it can achieve. But it seems to me that here was an example of something that had been effective. It was very difficult. It was very challenging, but we did it. Um, it was a shame that the decision was taken for the US to pull away from that. Um, and you're right, the president-elect has got to decide now how he's going to go forward. He was very much a part of the thinking uh, the decision-making in the United States that led to their incredible work in pulling off the final agreement uh, and making that strong and effective. So the first thing I'd say is he will want to re-examine where we were and look at where we are, to look at what has happened subsequently and to see whether he wants to go and try and simply take us back to that as a starting point, or whether he thinks it's time to rethink elements of the agreement in the context of where Iran is now and the subsequent changes. It's very important that people understand that the, the nuclear agreement was never meant to be the only thing we did with Iran. You know, we get a lot of bad publicity from people who say, well, it didn't do this or that. It wasn't meant to. Its whole point was to do what I described as move the boulder out of the doorway. You couldn't talk about other pressing and difficult issues um, with Iran while you had the prospect that they could be trying to build a nuclear weapon at the forefront of the conversation. It had to be dealt with in order to allow for discussion about many other issues of deep concern and understandable concern in the region and beyond. And so that agreement was meant to be what I call the first agreement. It was never meant to be the last. So even if President-elect Biden goes back to try and put something like that agreement together again, whether the same parameters or whether he changes things, that's for him to, to consider. And to consider, of course, with the other five countries and with the EU. It's not an American bilateral deal. Uh, it belongs to the five permanent members of the Security Council plus Germany with an EU 
chairmanship, if you like, around it. Um, but whatever he decides to do, I think he'll also be looking at the fact that there are plenty of other issues that members of Congress uh, will be interested in, that commentators will certainly raise with him, and that countries in the region will be uh, discussing with him in early phone calls that I'm sure he'll make to them. So it'll be, I hope, part of a broader, uh, a broader way of thinking about how to tackle the challenges that we now have in the region and how to tackle especially the role of Iran. So that's that's really interesting. If I I might be reading you wrong here, but it sounds to me like um, you you might be recommending some kind of renegotiation of the initial deal. I mean, if we use your bolder uh, metaphor, which I think is very helpful, I mean one option would be to simply you know go back to the deal as negotiated if we can get everyone to agree, um, and then work on whatever the next step is going to be. Um, but it sounded to me like you think we also have to consider that probably there's going to be a Republican majority and they were never big fans of this uh, initial bill. So that'll be a political problem for Biden. But if you were now the you know chief foreign policy advisor of uh, Biden and again, the Europeans, uh, what do you think the approach should be? Should it be start with this deal and then move on or renegotiate right away? Well, I think you have to start by discussing with your allies in this exactly where everybody feels we've got to. And then you've also got to talk to the Iranians uh, because you've also got to find out whether the changes that have been made uh, in the parameters of the program, which you alluded to rightly at the beginning, um, affect what should now happen. So you've got, in a sense, to look at what, what's happened to the original agreement before you do anything else. And then you have to look at all the other issues because I'm not suggesting either one of those as a as a, a way forward. I'm suggesting that you need to decide whether you have an original agreement upon which you build or you take that original agreement and build on it. The biggest um, challenge, uh, in a way, is that a lot of confidence has disappeared from the international system. You know, this was the only agreement in history where the five permanent members of the Security Council collaborated successfully for years, despite huge problems and challenges in other areas of policy. At the same time as we were negotiating the agreement with Iran, with Russia as our ally, we were in dispute, to put it mildly, with Russia over what was happening in Ukraine. And yet we managed to continue to collaborate together to achieve the Iran nuclear deal. We worked with China very closely. We worked with European allies, American allies. We were all together working constantly and consistently together. We didn't agree on everything, but nobody broke away from it. Uh, when the deal was finished, it was a good deal from everybody's point of view. We didn't lose people on the way saying you want too much or you want too little. It was a good deal. So it is a unique contribution to diplomatic life. And I would have loved to have seen the, the methodology, the permanent members working together as something that could have perhaps been used in other crises or issues or areas of, of life. It would have been, for me, something to have been tried again because it was so successful. So there's a lot to do for a Biden administration to begin to think, 
where are we with this? You know, what is the situation now? Where are we in terms of what the agreement required Iran to do? Can we just simply say, it's us, we're back, we're, we're going to stick with it? Is that going to work uh, from the perspective of what the, the Iranians might feel, but also the partners in the agreement may feel? How will the Russians and Chinese take to that? Is this just going to be four years of a, of this and then it might all change again? There's a whole raft of, of uh, politics and other questions to be considered alongside the fact that people are genuinely interested and genuinely concerned that whether it is building on this agreement or separate to this agreement, there's an opportunity taken to try and address some of the other concerns that people have. So beyond the JCPOA, if you were to pick from from your perspective, from a UK perspective, um, what would you like to see maybe the first one or two priorities of uh, a Biden foreign policy? What are you hoping for? Well, I think, you know, a lot of um, what I hope will happen early on is looking at the transatlantic relationship uh, more generally. Because from a European perspective, it's been uh, difficult to work out exactly how the United States sees this partnership upon which I would argue both sides have relied for decades. And to ensure that the collaboration that we've had in terms of addressing some of the big security challenges we faced, um, the economic issues that we face are going to be addressed by uh, returning to the sense that we are allies in this rather than either competitors or occasionally on opposite sides. And that means thinking through the relationship with China, the relationship with Russia, how we're going to deal with some of the big questions as I've said on security. And of course it will play into the relationship with NATO. I don't think there's anything uh, wrong with the United States continuing to seek stronger commitments from European countries for members of NATO in terms of resources. Neither do I see anything wrong with looking for strong commitments from Europe to address questions and issues and concerns that are what I describe as in Europe's backyard. Um, and wanting to see leadership from Europe in dealing with those with American support. Um, that's something I feel very much should be part of Europe's agenda going forward. So the residual effect of the last few years should be um, a stronger, more positive European focus on what Europe can do for its own neighbourhood and for itself, and I hope a determined commitment from both sides that the US-European collaboration and partnership um, is here to stay and is going to be strengthened and deepened over the next four years. Okay, and within this partnership, um, I mean, you're a very prominent European um, politician, but of course you're also British. And uh, we're looking at a slightly new relationship between the UK and um, and Europe and where do you see that impacting what what does it mean for the UK what is the future of the UK and transatlantic relationship well it's a good question 
uh, and we're going to have to see in a way how that plays out. I think part of the uh, future of the transatlantic relationship will depend on the future of the relationship between Britain and the European Union. Because if we're able to establish a strong economic uh, relationship, a strong collaboration in areas of foreign policy and security policy, uh, to see this as a sort of partnership without being a member, then I think it will be easier to keep the transatlantic relationship as strong as it's been, bearing in mind that because Britain is not in the EU, it's not going to be uh, the bridge or the conduit as it liked to see itself in the past between the US and the European Union. They will look elsewhere for that, probably to Berlin or to certainly to Paris. So it's going to change. But if Britain uh, is not able to develop a good relationship, a good working relationship with the EU, I think that might affect the transatlantic relationship because the focus, um, I imagine, for a Biden presidency will be mainly on the 27 countries collaborative approach because it's, it's stronger, it's deeper, it's more effective. And if you're working together on issues, you're able to bring the strength of that uh, economic and political relationship to bear. Whereas Britain in a similar context is a much smaller country and its influence has changed. So that's, I think, where it will lie. And it will depend, uh, as I say, on how far that relationship, though different, is felt to be constructive and useful and forward-looking. Thank you very much, Kathy, for uh, joining me, for having this conversation and for uh, letting us know what it looks like from your perspective. Thank you very much, Rach, for having me. That was great. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. The show is produced by Zachary Tarrant, Rachel Tausenfreund, and me, Sydney Simon. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.